Morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Jim. I want to say a special welcome to those of you who might be new joining us. Glad that you're here. A uh, couple things I want to tell you about before we dive into some stuff here. Uh, first of all, if you're new or newish to Ascent in the last, you know, however long, you just consider yourself kind of new to the community here, we would love it. Thanks, Jeff. We would love it if uh, today at 4 o'clock, it's right in the little uh, program there, it'll tell you uh, John and Melissa Friedery are hosting at their house, uh, just kind of get together for people that are newish to Ascent. I would love it if you'd uh, come meet some other new people. Uh, I'm going to be there this afternoon, so I'd love to meet you and get to know you a little bit better. So if you get a chance to come today to that, again, and you're new, please, please do that. And then uh, the second thing is we're working on some really exciting stuff for this fall just around how do people grow, how do we grow, what, is, what, is, uh, what can we as a church do to help encourage all of us to be growing more in our faith in Jesus. And this fall, we're going to try some new things with that. If, if you're somebody here who, man, when you, when you hear that, you think, man, that's something I would want to be involved in in some capacity, I'm just kind of planting the seed right now with you. This is the time of year where it's good to start thinking about what you're going to do next fall. And I would love for you to start thinking about that because there's going to be some things uh, in this church that you may be able to jump on and really help us and be a part of this effort, this movement that we want to do this fall. So uh, think about that. You're going to hear more about that over the next month and a half, okay? All right. Um, let, me, let me just start by uh, saying to you guys, I, I, I got to tell you, I am actually jealous of you. Uh, I have a jealousy in me because I have this little theory that I actually, and I believe this, I, I actually think that God is more likely to use you than God is likely to use me. That God actually may do something great more likely through you than through me. And, and, um, and let me tell you why. First of all, I got to tell you what it's like to be a pastor, okay? Being a pastor is kind of weird. So there's some things about being a pastor that are just odd. Like, uh, for instance, is I can meet somebody and I can be talking to them and we can be friends and they may drop a couple four-letter words in there. And um, when I tell them then what I do for a living, they go, you know? And they look at me like, honestly, like fire is going to consume them, like come out of my eyes and destroy them because they've cussed, you know? Like, I've never done that. So, that, so, so it's just weird. It's weird. Or I, I've literally showed up to parties before where people have drinks in their hands, and I've noticed I walk in and they go like this, you know? And I'm like, dude, read John chapter 2 when Jesus shows up at a party and turns water to wine. And then, what do you do? You know? It's just weird. I've had people say to me before they find out a pastor, like, dude, where, aren't you supposed to be wearing a thing? You know? Like, where's the special clothing? You know? And I'm like, no, it's just weird. I don't do that. That's, you'll never see me dress up for that reason, actually. There, you know, the, the one that gets me, too, is anytime somebody calls me reverend, I'm like, you don't know me. Uh, like, I, I, pastor, fine, because we're all pastors, but I, reverend goes like a step, like, that's, those are fighting words, you know, for me. Like, don't call me reverend. But the thing that gets me, I think, more than anything, this, this is the one that just kills me. There are some people that see pastors in a light where it's kind of like, oh, you know what, um, 
to really be used by God, to, to really have God do something great, like that's what pastors do. That's what the professionals do. Like there's a, there's a track of like a pastor must be more in tune with God, more likely to be used by God. They're on a different track than me, a different plane than me, and the rest of us are on this track over here. So there's two different tracks. Some people actually see this, and maybe some of us in this room actually see it that way, that there's two different tracks, a pastor track and an everybody else track. Man, I just got to tell you, and let's talk today honestly about this. There is nothing further from the truth when you read the Bible. There's nothing further than the truth of saying there are a certain special people that God chooses who are uniquely gifted, and God is going to use them. The truth is, when you read the Bible, God is using the most unexpected people all the time. God will always choose the person you least expect to do something great. Man, you cannot read the Bible and escape that. In fact, man, like I just sometimes feel like as a pastor, like Jesus, I was the last guy that Jesus was using. You read through the scriptures, man, it's this track that gets used by God, not this track. And that's why I have to admit, sometimes I feel a little sense of jealousy around this. Look, here, here's what we're doing. We're, we're doing a series, Brill, uh, Bill just like brilliantly last week kicked off our series called This Is Us. And the idea is how God uses people, ordinary people like us to do amazing things. And we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is uh, sometimes referred to as the Faith Hall of Fame. It's this cool chapter where we kind of run through a lot of different people in uh, the history of the Bible that God took, real flawed people, that God took and did really amazing things through. And, and there's this big list in Hebrews 11 of them. A couple of the people that I'm going to talk about today, one of them is a guy named Gideon. So we're going we're to talk a little bit about this guy Gideon. And another person, a woman named Rahab. And I'm telling you guys, we're talking about the least expected people doing great things because God chose to use them. So I hope, let's, let's get going here today because I think the barriers that you might have on, our, on yourself, on myself, of why God might not use us, whew, once you start reading the Bible, you go, ah, I'm not so sure those are actually true. So... Here's, here's what I want to do. The first thing I want us to do today is I, I kind of want us to take a moment and look at, um, I want us to look at a little history around this. So I, I want you to understand the story of Gideon. Here's what I'm going to ask you. Give me two minutes to give you a little history. If, you, if, you, if you'll stick with me for these two minutes of history, the rest of the talk is going to make more sense. So you ready? Here comes my two minutes. Here's, here's the history of Israel quickly. So you've got the Middle East. This is obviously the Mediterranean Sea. And um, so it, the history of Israel actually started with a guy named Abraham who God sent from over here somewhere to here-ish. But then the, the Jews ended up in Egypt. They went there because they were starving and needed food. So they all roamed down to Egypt. And they were friends with the people there at first, and then they became slaves to the people. Imagine an entire nation of people who are slaves to another nation of people. And you don't have to look far to do that. You can just think back to the American South a couple hundred years ago. 
That's what you've got. You've got an entire people group that are enslaved to another people group. So the, the Jews are slaves to the Egyptians, but they're rescued. They are rescued. God uses a guy named Moses, and he takes Egypt, or he takes uh, the Jews out of Egypt into a place that they just refer to as the promised land, that God was going to lead them to a land that he promised to them. And so they go up and they start living in the promised land, this incredible miracle, right, that Moses leads them out of Egypt. So they go to the promised land, and here's, here's the um, context for the story. So we're going to read this out of a book called Judges. And, and the reason why it's called Judges is when they moved into the promised land, they didn't actually have like a king, there's all these people who have been rescued out of Egypt, gone into the promised land, but they don't really have like an official leader. And so what happened was is that God, when they would get in trouble, would raise up a certain person called a judge, a, a man or woman, who would lead the people of Israel for a certain period of time, and then they'd kind of disappear. But there wasn't like a succession of kings. It was just these judges that would appear when they, when they got in trouble. So that's the context. There you, you guys did it. Two minutes. That wasn't bad, was it? Two-minute little history lesson, and now you're going to understand the story that we're going to read from Judges chapter 6 about a guy named Gideon, who's one of these judges that gets called by God. So here's, here's the story. It starts in uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So here, here's, here's a little bit of the context of this. Guys... This is called This Is Us because the people, this story is 3,400 years old. This, we think, our best guess is 3,400 years ago. The people back then are exactly in some ways like we are right now. Guys, we tend to, when things are going well, we tend to not see our need for God as much anymore. We are far more likely to follow God when things are hard in some ways and we need help then we are to follow God when things are going great. You are never at more danger of turning your back on God when things are smooth. It's just human nature, and it is true the Israelites. Think they get in the promised land. Things are going well. We've got our land. They tend to turn away from God and start to follow other things in their lives, other gods even. So the Israelites did evil. That's what this is. They, they turned their back on God. They did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. And, and this is so, in some ways, like God. This, this little verse right here is important. Because sometimes I think when we turn our back on God, that God does the lightning bolt thing and sends some sort of awful punishment at us. What I see often in the scripture, and this is no exception, what God doesn't do is he doesn't force himself on you. If you decide that you don't want to follow God, God will sometimes go, okay. But what happens is then there are often natural consequences of that action. So in this case, the, Mid uh, the Israelites are saying, we're turning our back on God. We're kind of walking away from God. God goes, okay, I'm not going to force myself on you. But that means God is withdrawing his protection for these people. There's a natural consequence often to the things we do when we turn away from God. And that's exactly what is happening right here. And so God withdraws his protection and these Midianites, these guys live right here, the Midianites come up and they start to take over the promised land. Look what happens in verse two. It says this, it says, uh, Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, the caves, and the strongholds. 
Guys, this is where when you read the Bible, you have got to picture and understand what is going on. And by the way, man, if you want to grow in your faith, one of the things, and this is actually proven in some, uh, when people do studies on how people grow, one of the ways you will grow in your faith is if you are consistently reflecting on the Bible. And having, having the Bible be a part of your rhythm of life and reflecting on what's in it. And one of the ways you do it is you actually kind of picture what it was like. So you don't read this verse and just skim over it. You go, okay, the Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in mountains, caves, and strongholds. Imagine what that was like. These Midianites were known for a couple things. They were known for human sacrifice, and specifically they were known for child sacrifice. So what was likely happening is these Midianites are showing up. Can you imagine? They're, they're taking the Israelites' kids. They're stealing away their children. They're taking them back down to Midian, and they're, they're killing them. They're sacrificing them in their, like, crazy God ceremonies that they do. This is, this is what they did. It got to the point where they had to hide from them and do anything they could. Imagine, imagine if a nation invaded Boulder in Louisville, and we had to somehow find somewhere to get away. We'd all be going up in Boulder Canyon, El Dorado Canyon, Left Hand Canyon. We would be hiding in little caves up there, trying to get away from these people. And I'll tell you what, all of a sudden, Bill Stevens would be my best friend because I know how to fly fish, and I'd be catching fish out of that stream, feeding people. <laughs> that, you just watch. That's why I fly fish, just in case this happens. So, so, but that's what they're doing. This is how bad it is. Imagine it. Feel it. Look what happens in verse 3. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land, destroying the crops as far away as Gaza. This is genocide. They're trying to starve them out. Then they left the the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, the goats, cattle, 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 (laughs) the donkeys, these enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count. I did a little uh, Google search on locust swarm in the Middle East, and this is a picture that I got from it. Just imagine this. They're like these little grasshopper things, and they just take over everything. If you've seen Planet Earth 2, you've seen this video. It's unbelievable what these locusts do. They leave, they, they leave nothing behind. This writer is trying to get you into this story to say, this is what the Midianites are doing. They have just ravaged everything to the point where we're just hiding in caves. Look at verse 6. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare, just like locusts. So Israel was reduced to starvation. Their kids don't have anything to eat. Nobody has anything to eat because of the Midianites. And then... Again, this is us. This is us. When, when, when we are at our lowest, we call out. And that's exactly what Israel does. Then the Israelites, at their, at their low point, they cry out to the Lord for help. We, we need help. We've got to have help. Guys, I want us to take a peek now at how God responds. You know, often we think, man, well, we turn your back. It's tit for tat. You shouldn't get anything back for that. Like God, God, God should be so tired of us turning our back on him that eventually someday God's just going to go, well, I'm not going to respond anymore when they cry out for help. That's not the God of the Bible. 
over and over again, God responds when people call to him. In this story, no different. Look, look what happens in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah. There is an H in there. It's not Oprah. Which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, this is our, this is our guy, Gideon son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. Just a quick aside on that. The way that they had their wine presses, they had a pit that they would dig in the ground and they would dump all their grapes in there. And then what they do is people would come in and just step on them. So you'd step on all the grapes and then they had this little channel that would flow out of it where all the juice would come from the grapes down into these little pits And in those pits, it would ferment and they'd get their wine that way. So Midian has gone down into this little pit and he has somehow rigged something where he can hide down there and he's got a stash of food in his wine press. This is the only way he can keep his family fed and the food away from the Midianites because they are so thorough in trying to make sure that they are killing these Israelites. Look at at verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and he said, mighty hero. The Lord is with you. All right. You've got the lay of the land. You know what the Midianites look like. The locust swarm. I want you to picture in your head what kind of person God would call to defeat this army. What's a mighty, if an angel calls you a mighty hero, what do you look like? I can show you what I think you look like. You look like this, man. Not me. Put a... (laughs) I mean, the only difference really is the hair, but (laughs) no, I mean, don't you think of that? You got to think of somebody who's got, you know, he's got the hammer, he's ready to go. That's that's my image of of what Gideon must look like if he's going to be called to this kind of incredible challenge. He's got to be Thor, somebody like that. All right. Let's look and see who Gideon really is. Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Here's the first words of Gideon. Sir, says to the angel, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Man, the first words out of Gideon's mouth aren't, let's do this. The first words out of Gideon's mouth, this is us. The angels met with doubt. Man, this is the same question we would ask today. God, if you really want me to do this, why is it that my life has turned so sour? God, where have you been? Like all the stuff that I see going on in the world that's so bad. Like we, we don't trust. We don't believe. And for good reason. Gideon's the same. He's got the questions too. God's not afraid of that question. But that's the question that Gideon asks. I love that second uh, question that he asks. He says, He basically says, hey, I've heard all these stories since I was a kid about how 
you took us out of Egypt and our ancestors then came into this promised land. I've heard all the stories, but I've never actually experienced it for myself. Come on, how, how real is that? How many of us would say that we relate to that question where you go, man, I've, I've read the Bible or I've read parts of the Bible. I come to church on Sunday. I hear guys like me stand up and talk about all the miraculous thing that God does and is doing in the world, and yet I've never actually experienced it myself. So did I miss the memo? That why is God doing all this? At least I keep hearing about it, but I don't see him actually doing something in my life, and therefore we conclude maybe he isn't real. That's exactly what Gideon's going through. Saying, I've heard all the stories, but I haven't experienced myself, so I'm not sure I believe. Man, this is our mighty hero. It's us. This is how we respond. This is how I respond. How will God respond? How will God respond to Gideon's doubt? Is he going to retract the offer? Is he going to say, ah, oh, you know what? Since you didn't trust me, then you're out. Look, look, what, look what God says in return. This angel says in return. The Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. I actually find this really fascinating that what God meets our doubt with is different than what we might anticipate. I don't, I don't know how you work, but if, if I'm doubting something and I have real questions, I actually want a logical answer. So if I am wondering, God, why don't you do this or that in our day and age, I would, I would expect in this story in some ways that the angel goes, okay, well... Here's the deal. God has a criteria for miracles, and there's five things that have to meet the criteria in order for God to do the miracle. You want some logic, but that's not what God gives him. What God gives him is something else. God says, go, do it. Take on the Midianites, and I'm going to go with you. Go with the strength you have. God meets doubt in this story and in many other places in the Bible. God meets doubt by asking us to take a risk. Why is that? Why not logic? Why are we getting to ask to take a risk instead of an explanation? Because this is, this is one of the founding principles, actually, of this church. That idea is, if we have doubts about God's existence and God's power, often it might be because we have not extended ourselves into a risky enough situation where we might actually see God at work. If, if we find our lives sometimes comfortable, if we find our lives sometimes in a space where we're not extending beyond what we ourselves can do, there's no reason for God. By, by definition, faith means that God is doing something in your life that goes beyond what you are capable of doing yourself. You cannot have faith without risk. It's impossible. God is saying to Gideon, you have all these questions and they're good questions. I'm not going to give you the logical five points. 
I'm gonna have you experience it for yourself. And to experience it for yourself, it means you're gonna have to take a risk. I guarantee you, every single one of us in this room, that God is actually, in some way right now, calling you to some kind of risk that goes beyond what you're capable of. I guarantee it. Whether it's to forgive someone, that it's gonna take a risk for you to be the person that actually humbles himself and goes, that's a huge risk. You, you are putting yourself in a, in a position of rejection and failure. But that's what God is after. Or maybe it's you're at a, a job of some kind that you're just like, I just, I'm doing this every day and I don't think this is a thing. I feel like God has something else for me. There may be a huge risk of you to say, I'm going to leave this I'm going to risk my paycheck, I'm going to risk my benefits, but I believe that God has something else for me. It could be a huge risk for you with your boss or whomever is asking you to do something that you don't feel is right or ethical to stand up and say, I don't actually think that's right. It could be a huge risk for you to befriend somebody that is outside the circle of where the rest of your social circle says is okay. It's a huge risk. God is constantly asking us to be willing to be rejected or fail. You want to see God work? This little angel here is saying to Gideon, the answers to your question are found in your ability to actually take a risk. I find that fascinating to go, you know what? God, where am I living the comfortable life and not moving out of my comfort zone? And I'll continue to maybe not see God work the way I want him to when I continue to do that. Now, he's a doubter. So, okay, go back now. Mighty hero, who have we found so far? We've found Gideon, and the first words out of his mouth are doubter, but it gets, it gets worse or better, however you want to look at it, right? So, so look, look at what Gideon says next. This is verse 15. So he says, I'm sending you, go. Gideon says, but Lord, how can I rescue Israel, Really? Come on. My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, right? They're all split into all these tribes, and, and Gideon's a part of the weakest one, the worst one. And then look at this. I am the least in my entire family. I'm the weakest of the weakest. I'm the worst. I'm the flabbiest. I, I'm so anti-Thor that, you know, I'm not just a doubter. I'm just flat out weak. It, it doesn't, you know, you can put me on steroids, it won't matter. I, I got nothing. I am a doubting weakling. Man, what, what, what's God going to do with that? Again, think of your image of who God calls. This is the most unexpected person that you can imagine. And, and here's what God does. Here's what's so beautiful about this. Maybe somebody in your life uh, has been able to look at you, a mentor or uh, a supervisor or something like that, a teacher, has been able to look at you and actually, have you ever had this? Actually, somebody looks at you and sees the future you, not the present you. That's the beauty of what you see in the call of God. God always sees the future you. He sees the future Gideon. He sees what can be, not what is right now. You ever stop and think, God, that's what God sees you now. God sees the future you. 
Man, I, that encourages me so much. It makes me go, oh man, that means there's hope for me. I'm used to critiquing the current me. And yet God, despite the flaws, sees you in the future and calls you because of it. So doubting weakling, but here's the one that gets me. Uh, Bill and I, when we work on these talks every week, we, uh, there's, just, there's usually one or two things that hit you when you're studying for this that make you go, oh my gosh. This one's the one for me. If you flip ahead in that chapter, and by the way, I'm not going to read to you the rest of it. You've got to go read it yourself and find out what happens with Gideon. If you read ahead in that chapter, you find out that Gideon isn't just a doubting weakling. He actually doesn't believe, and neither does his family, in God at all. At least this God. Gideon's family worships a God called, that they called Baal. So Baal was a god that was like a, um, a rain god, fertility god, that they would do all these crazy ceremonies to try to get it to rain. And they would build little, little statues, like if you've seen uh, Russell Crowe in Gladiator, you know, he's got his little idols. They had these for Baal. And they had big statues for Baal. And, and that's who his family worshipped, was, was Baal. Guys, it's one thing to doubt God. It's another thing to be weak. It's another thing to just be a, a pagan, right? It just means he was, a, he was a guy who believed in many gods. There was no allegiance there. It was, it was whatever God would do the thing for them that they needed. This is who God calls to defeat the swarm of locusts, the Midianites. Incredible. Guys, the thing about God, the thing about God is, if you think about how human beings decide who's going to lead, think about at work, school, whatever, sports, how do we determine who gets to lead? The first thing we do is we qualify people. We look at their resume, we find out their skills, their talents, you know, we see who's the most gifted. We do all our study to qualify whomever it is, and then if they meet all the criteria, we call them, or we hire them, or we admit them to our school, or whatever it is. We start with the qualifications, and it moves toward our call. How does God do this? Take a big guess. He does exactly the opposite, doesn't he? Instead of looking for qualifications and then calling, God calls you into something and then he qualifies you. He's going to call you into something. You're not ready. You're not. That's good. God will take that call and he will qualify you. The story with Gideon is, he's this pagan guy who's worshiping all these crazy gods, and God says, you got to get rid of that. You got to knock that down. You got to knock that statue down. You got to take all that stuff, throw it away. It's time to stop playing superstitious games and start being a big boy and follow a God, me, that is going to actually do something, a real thing. That's, so, he, so God says, I'm calling you, and now I'm going to qualify you. It's, it's exactly opposite of how we as human beings do it. 
But that is the nature of our God, and that's why I love him. Because who did Jesus call? He didn't call church guys. He called fishermen. He called tax collectors. He called rebels. Those, that's, that's the band that Jesus called, and he spent three years with them to get them. He called them, and then he qualified them. That's God's program. What are the barriers that you've put up in your life that say you can't be called? There's big macro level ones and there's personal ones. Macro level, I'm not a pastor, let's leave it professionals, track one, track two, that's no. Maybe, maybe there's other big macro level ones that you go, ah, I disqualify myself from being able to lead because of some other issue. Maybe, maybe it's even you're a woman, not a guy. Uh, let, me, let me track you on this. We, we talked about um, Rahab, who's in Hebrews 11, a woman who was a prostitute who helped the Israelites get out of Egypt into the promised land, so much so that she was a hero listed in Hebrews chapter 11. I... Uh, one of the more proud moments for me of our church came on Easter Sunday. It was right out in the cafe out there, and we had tons of people come. It was a great day. Lots of people we hadn't seen in a long time. Lots of new people. Just felt we were so encouraged by how that day went. You guys just invited like crazy. It was awesome. So, but I'm out in the cafe, and this high school young woman comes up to me. <laughs> so great. She goes. She looks at me, and she just goes, I want to do what you do someday. I want to preach. And I was like, great. And she started talking about kind of why she wants to do it. And, you know, she's just inspired by it and wants to do it herself. And you know what I told her? I just said, oh, my gosh, can I just tell you why I'm so encouraged by this? I said, there are some places out there where you being a female, you would disqualify yourself from being able to do what I'm doing. And I am so glad that you're part of a church community where there is no limits to your ability to serve. The only thing that limits people in, in our church and the way we see it is how you're gifted, not your gender. There's no limits on gender to leadership around here. And, and I, you know, I know the biblical arguments. I've read them all. I know the tough passages. I looked at the entire Think of scripture, and you got to know from Bill and I's perspective, that is so key to who we are as a church. We really, really believe in that. And that's why I'm so excited that when Aisha or some of the other women that we have preach stand up here, that this high school young woman is looking at that going, there's no limits to who I can be. There's no boundaries to my leadership. And we have Aisha up here, not just to prove that point. We have Aisha up here because she's dang good. You know, we have, we have Becky up here leading worship because she's dang good and she's called to it. We have Mindy Caliguire as the chair of our elders, of our board, because she's good. She's called to it. We never want those barriers to limit someone from thinking that they can lead. Man, I, I think you can see in a world where women are restricted in leadership, we get into trouble. We don't want that here at our church. We don't buy that. And that's our reading of the scripture that's important to us. But there's personal levels too. Maybe, maybe for you, you disqualify yourself from leadership because of some failure that happened in your life. 
something that you look back on and you're ashamed of and you think, I can't leave because of that. You know what's funny? I think it is far more likely that God will take your greatest failure and do something great with it than God will take your greatest strength and do something with it. Because in your weakness, I am made perfect. So God looks at it. God goes, I will use your weakness. And so we look at it and we go, oh man, I failed. I can't lead. Or I'm too busy. I can't lead. I'm a single parent. I can't lead. I've done this or I've done that. There's something, there's a because statement. I can't lead because. And this whole time, God's going, yeah, these are the kind of people I call. So welcome to the club. Man, I just want to ask you today, what is that thing, what is that risk, what is that call that you're sitting on that God is asking you to move forward with? This comes from Jesus, man. Jesus took the ultimate risk. God the Son leaves heaven, becomes a human being. That's an incredible risk. Comes to earth on the greatest rescue mission ever. (laughs) Makes Gideon's thing look like child's play. No, God comes to earth in the person of Jesus at great risk, great potential for rejection and failure, and dies and comes back to life to conquer the grave and conquer the sin that's in our hearts. Man, that's amazing. Do you know Jesus has two words to describe himself? I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there's, there's one line Jesus makes where he actually uses adjectives for himself. Do you, you know what they are? He says, I am gentle and I am humble. I'm humble. I actually think the only thing that could possibly disqualify us from God calling you to do something great, some sort of leadership, is pride. God is looking for people who are humble and ready to jump on with where God's going to take you. What's that risk? What is that risk today for you? Lord, I am struck by how easy this is to talk about and how hard it is to actually do. I pray for uh, myself and my friends here that we would destroy those because statements that we try to disqualify ourselves somehow from what you are calling us to do, the risk you're calling us to take. I pray, Lord, there are people in this room right now who are struggling with a massive decision or struggling with some sort of anger or forgiveness issue around some person in their life. God, somehow by your spirit, would you move us today toward a miraculous, a miraculous way of seeing you work in our lives because we have allowed it by moving beyond what we're capable of. God, thanks for Gideon. Rahab, thank you that you destroy the boundaries of what it means to lead in this world, that you are so different than how human beings see it. And so, God, we, um, we ask for your help and guidance today on this. Lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.